Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn about us at zencare.org. Today I wanted to talk a little bit about this sort of subtle way of the so-called new nanshin. Koshin-san uh, told me that you are now going, you're studying Dogen's teaching. <laughs> it gave me a tremendous pressure. <laughs> and then I, I went back to the, my, my bookshelf. And I opened up the book and as I started review the Shobo Genzo in Japanese and then reflecting that in English translation. And boy, it just reminded me how tough it is <laughs> to read Dogen's writing. Uh, but there's one episode that I particularly like about his life. And this is based on that story. New Nanshin, the soft and flexible mind. Uh, let's see. So, um, the, in Soto Zen school, which I, I serve, I, I serve a non-denominational Buddhist community, uh, independent Soto, Soto Zen temple, and the Soto Zen structure. So there's a lot of contradicting roles that I'm playing, which in a sense, I'm kind of enjoying. Um, but uh, as an organization or Soto Zen school in Japan, the main tenets, just like Bonnie Roshi had the tenets, uh, we, there, we have tenets written down in our, uh, what we call constitution or creed. And this is called Shishobo or Bodai Sato. Um, basically, it means four forms of practice for bodhisattvas to deliver all people, all forms of living from their suffering. And if I say it, it makes sense probably already if you've been uh, immersed in this practice. Namely, that's puset, giving with non-attachment, no aversion. Aigo compassionate words, compassionate speech, video, actions of benefiting others, serving others, and doji, equalizing ourselves with others or creating no boundary between others and us. So more or less, there's a bunch of different translations. I think Enkyo Roshi of the village Zendo used the word identical actions. Uh, for the last one. I love, I like that translation very much. And these are the specific practice that we are signed where you know, we're supposed to embody through our life. Once we step over the threshold onto this path of Soto Zen practice. Now, when Dogen Zenji came back from China, uh, you know, he, people knew that he was trying in China 
I often imagine what it must be like for some American students to go to China or Japan and have some training for years and come back. Uh, he was asked by other fellow Buddhist priests that what it was that he brought back from China. And back then, it was very common for Buddhist priests to stay in China and bring back the Buddhist statue, um, scrolls of paint or scrolls of scriptures, something tangible, <laughs> something, something that you can touch and see. All right. And I think that's also probably the same in today's life, today's world. Um, but Dogen wasn't interested in bringing these items. Uh, so instead, he said, when I, he was asked what, what it was that he brought from China, he said it was new Nanshin, the self-flexible mind. And this story really stuck in my mind <laughs> at a certain impact. And if you have your friends who visit Kyoto, like you would expect your friends to bring something, <laughs> right? And that's, that's our tendency. <laughs> so, um, so while we tend to seek for some tangible thing, tangible material outcome, some kind of visible form of achievement, a visible form of blessings and benefits, um, this new Nanshin is sort of a foundation of, to me, it's a foundation of the full Bodhisattva practice of giving with non-attachment, compassionate words and speech, and serving, benefiting all, and equalizing ourselves with others. And all of this have this new Nanshin as its basis. And I do wonder, uh, as I follow the news today, how this sort of way of life, this sort of foundation can be reintroduced, represented to today's US society. So on Wednesday night, I practice Zen practice, Soto Zen practice. I'm not supposed to really do that Long Beach Buddhist church because that's a non-denominational Buddhist community. So I keep calling them meditation practice, a Buddhist meditation practice. <laughs> now, so all the Soto Zen practice I'll do at Sol Zenji Temple. So Wednesday night, we get together, we sit for one period of Zazen. And after the period of Zazen, we do a service, liturgy. And after maybe 10 minutes short service, we sit together in circle. And I give each student a specific instruction, how to ring the bell how to ring the drum like I did just now, how to make the sound with uh, wood clappers and how to step into the hole, which foot comes first, which way you're supposed to be looking at and why we do that and why you have to do it and how you do that. So step by step. And it's interesting how some people are really interested in this. <laughs> you know, we, we often talk about uh, we have a Buddha nature but I always thought, I, well, that's hopefully we're well aligned with that. But I kept telling people that I have a brat nature, which I can't quite shrug off. <laughs> so I've been quite rebellious consistently throughout my entire life. And at one time I asked my senior monks, who was an Ahish, like, what the heck does it have to do with serving the people, serving the world, 
freeing up the people from the suffering. <laughs> I just couldn't suppress this urge to ask these questions. <laughs> um, let's see. So <laughs> that was, um, I think everybody, in such, to some extent, we have this kind of questions. But uh, so actually, with this question, you know, I did all this sort of uh, forms and I did go into the work and I have to. I'm gonna, I have to blame Bonnie Roshi because he inspired me into this path of social actions. So I was working as a counselor. I worked for the nonprofit and with all the mistakes and successes, then I learned the importance of the new Nanshin again, the significance of Zen practice. We give, we talk to others we serve others and we equate ourselves with others in a way that has no tension, neither attachment or aversion that arises naturally with this soft, flexible mind. And when you have this sort of tension comes either the aversion with aversion or attachment, there's a little bit of a gap discrepancy between your intention and your actions. You will see it in the way you make the sound with the bell. We can see that gap when you enter the hall. You can see that in that moment you chant. And you can also see that in a way you serve others. So in the workshop, again, sort of Lunch Temple, I encourage my students to be very vigilant, concentrated for the practice. So they go like, and then sometimes as I was, find their hands shaking like this, trying to get the bell. So I encourage them simultaneously, completely relax and just stay loose, then watchful without the tension, without that gap of discrepancy. And this sort of softness, flexibility is really important for our chanting, for ringing bells, for anything, uh, for uh, serving others, uh, doing a service, um, for anything, for doing fundraising events. We give, we talk to others, we serve others, we create no boundaries with this soft, flexible mind. And this is another story that I like. One of my favorite koans, I guess, koans. I don't study koan like my Zimi Roshi's lineage, white plum lineage. That, so it's not my speciality. So please excuse me if I'm talking about something that's not quite accurate. But one of the stories that I like was um, Bodhisattva's action reaching out to sentient being. It's like you're sleeping and then while sleeping, uh, now you're fixing your pillows on the back. And it sort of made sense. And again, with my brat nature, <laughs> I, I kind of prefer this, my personal version, <laughs> which is about picking our nose. And the moment I said that, my friend said, no, you don't pick your nose, you blow your nose. So I changed that. Was, we'll blow our nose. I'm sorry. 
And when we blow our nose, it's an action of necessity. We don't make a big fuss over it. We act according to the need. We don't put too much pressure until it starts bleeding. <laughs> or we don't neglect it until it's totally and out of control. <laughs> we don't brag about it or let alone, we don't show that off. No. <laughs> A full practice of bodhisattvas happens often to me. It's just like that. It's just like where I think blowing a nose very casually, practically, realistically, accordingly, in accordance with what needs to happen. And this is how we give. This is how we talk to others with compassion. We serve others and see ourselves in others. Again, free from the tension of attachment or aversiveness, aversion. Um, yes, so that's something that I wanted to share about the new notion, the self-flexible mind. Now, having said this, having said this, this new notion manifests differently sometimes. There were two occasions in the monastery. One was the fire in the mountain gate. There's a fire bell. Everybody drops everything. Everything stops that moment. We all rush out, whether you're in a robe or in a somewhere, to prevent the spread of the fire. Fire. It's a drastic change from this tranquil quietness to everybody rushing out. Only one time it happened. And the other one's a death of our parish uh, members. One time it happened. So this abrupt sudden jump leap from this spot, that's also the act that happens in accordance with the need. This is a little bit off the topic of the Buddhism, but something similar I can say <laughs> in Japan. Uh, you know, if, I appreciate many people are now somewhat understand the Japanese culture and beauty, including the Zen culture. But the Japanese people have a crazy culture too. And one of them is eating mochi rice cake on the New Year's Day. This big, thick cake. It's not sweet, says cake. It's it's a uh, sticky rice, and they put that in the soup. And oh boy, everybody loves it. Small kids other community members, and many die every year begin getting this mochi rice cake stuck in their throat. And we keep doing this. We keep eating this rice cake. So I guess that's how important for us to eat mochi rice cake on the New Year's. And one time I had my old day friends, friends from old day, um, and when he was young, this mochi rice cake got stuck in his throat. So what his mom did was she grabbed his feet and then I think it was dad probably too and hung him upside down and keep hitting his back. The mochi wouldn't come out. So they go out, take out the vacuum cleaner, stick the end of the vacuum cleaner and suck out the rice cake. <laughs> and it was horrible. But at the same time, when we were kids, it was just made me laugh so hard. That's, that's something we do that as well and because it keeps us from it's a matter of life and death 
And that too, to me, is happens uh, with a soft, flexible mind. If you have this attachment that we always have to be like this, and looking at this, looking at the kid, choking with a mochi rice cake, well, yeah, you have to sort of uh, reflect on that, you know. And so self-flexible mind manifests in many different ways. And then, again, in today's society in the United States, I often wonder how this word sounds, how we can use this word, especially as we follow today's world. In this country, there's a particular word, justice, that we say needs to be executed. How are we able to execute justice with this new notion? Are we able to even do that? Are we able to execute like justice? Like how when we blow our nose with a soft, flexible mind, free from attachment or aversion. And to me, I thought was might be an interesting koan to work on in today's US. So that was one thing I wanted to share. And I hope this idea, this kind of understanding of new Nanshin, self-flexible mind, will give you a little sort of part of basis for your daily practice. Now, uh, Koshin-san, I still have more time, right? Yeah, okay, right. <laughs> so just in case, I brought just one more thing. That Long Beach Buddhist community that I serve, they come from the fishing village. They're fishers. They're very blunt. They talk to me in a very straightforward manner. And they're also non-denominational. So I try not to talk too much about Zen philosophy. And one time, however, I kind of got carried away and talked about Zen philosophies. And one of the members, young members, came to me and said, Sensei, uh, they call me Sensei in the community. Sensei, thank you so much for the service and the wonderful talk. And she goes on, but I didn't understand a flicking single thing you were talking about. <laughs> and, so, and he says, well, we need something really specific, something very concrete, you know, that, <laughs> that we don't have to think about too much. And uh, so the next time, next time we had a service, I followed, again, this is a Soto Zen practice, but a thing called um, Gemon. It's like a constant renewal of vows. And I guess with the new Nanshin's understanding of new Nanshin, a soft, flexible mind, uh, sort of casualness, this can be a good part of practice. So in a monastic life, uh, in Heiji Chu, we often encourage to recite or chant a certain verse, verse called Gemon. Gemon literally means the text of verse. And probably the ones you might know the well the most is a sutra opening verse. So I read this, the unsurpassed profound and wonderful Dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million countless. Now we can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May we unfold the meaning of Tathagata's truth. And then we also have, I wonder if you know this, it's in the book sometimes, a prostration verse, which goes, the nature of that 
which can be and is worshipped, is empty and still. One's own body and the body of other are in essence not two. May we together with all beings obtain liberation, giving rise to the supreme intention, relying on the ultimate truth. These are often commonly chanted, recited verses. Then in our life in the monastery, we have the bathing verse, New York Noge. Bathing the body, may all living beings be clean in body and mind, pure and shining within and without. Then when you wake up and brush your teeth, there's a verse that goes, holding the toothbrush, may all living beings attain the true Dharma and be naturally pure and clean. This part of Soto Zen, of Zen tradition was uh, in a very beautiful way, in a very gentle way, introduced by Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh, who turned 94 yesterday, right? <laughs> Um, I'm just relieved that he's uh, doing well. Um, Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh, that Thich Nhat Hanh is, uh, I always feel, although I've never met him, I know Reverend Isho Fujita is some translation for his book, so through him I got to know him more. And he's no doubt is uh, one of the greatest contributors, uh, teachers in the world of Dharma. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh introduced this tradition using the modern words. He was a poet, so I'd like to share this. So I, I assume you already know this verse, but when we wake up, he would go, waking up this morning, I smile. 24 brand new hours are before me. I vow to live fully in each moment and to look at all beings with the eyes of compassion. And I like his version of verse to brush your teeth, which goes, brushing my teeth and rinsing my mouth, I vow to speak purely and lovingly. And when my mouth is fragrant with right speech, a flower blooms in the garden of my heart. If you're lying down on bed, resting in the ultimate dimension, using snowy mountains as a pillow and beautiful pink clouds as blankets. Nothing is lacking. And of course, for sitting Zazen meditation practice, he has this beautiful verse, which goes, I have arrived. I am home. In here, in the now, I am solid, I am free, in the ultimate I dwell. And these verses go even farther to doing dishes. Washing the dishes is like bathing the baby Buddha. The profane is the sacred. Everyday mind is Buddha's mind. If you're driving your car, which we do a little less now, it goes, before starting the car, 
I know where I am going. The car and I are one. If the car goes fast, I go fast. This is the last one. If you're texting somebody or calling someone, you can sort of recite in your heart. Words can travel thousands of miles. May my words create mutual understanding and love. May they be as beautiful as gems, as lovely as flowers. I am not a poet, and I don't have any poetic sense at all, personally. <laughs> but so I envy those. I think it's wonderful that you are have sort of this kind of artistic sense. And with that sort of soft, flexible mind, you can apply this very casually. Uh, you don't have to put like too much. It, it some, sometimes comes out spontaneously. Now, for someone like me who has zero talent for this sort of poetic expression, uh, we have a certain line that we share in our church and our community in Long Beach. And this is, that goes, made a merit, made a merit of sharing your time on Zoom, sharing your thoughts and good wishes, fulfill our hearts and be extended to our loved ones, family and friends, and to all peoples and to all living beings. May we together with them attain the Buddha. And this is how we can sort of renew our intention, renew our aspiration moment after moment. And this is truly a very specific way for us to embody a Zen practice emotion of the cushion. So I yet yeah, <laughs> to be honest with you <laughs> although we're encouraged to use this constantly with a busy life in a monastery sometimes uh, we start to forget to do this as often as we should and when i came to the united states and i realized how sincere people are about the essence of practice uh, i thought oh this first, this sort of practice first. And when I encounter this series of verses, I was encountering each one with probably the most sincere intention at the time. And so this kind of habit, this sort of ritual practice brings me back that initial sincere intention. So I'd like to conclude today's message with, with your hands in that shell, hands together, that's okay. May this humble merit of sharing the Dharma message, sharing a practice of Zen, our time, our presence, our thoughts and good wishes, fulfill our hearts, all be extended to our loved ones, our family and friends, and to all those who have been sharing their life with them. To all people, 
to all living beings. May we together with them embody the Buddha way. Namukie Butsu. Namukie Ho. Namukie So. Thank you very much. And maybe we have a little time for questions. Is that okay, Gyoke? Of course, yes. So anyone have a Dharma question for Gyoke? Or any question? Just unmute. Let and cancel the spot. Don't be shy. Well, I, have, I have a question. So okay. <laughs> my question is, what inspired you about coming to from your to first to come to Canada when you were in high school? And then what inspired you to return later on to the to America? First to Canada as a high schooler and then what inspired you then to come back? as an adult? Um, I, well, to be honest, Coach san I still have this aspiration, a goal, well, it's my passion, to carry on and share the Dharma with my Canadian friends. So, um, right, it remains to be my goal. And so I consider myself right now in a training phase. It's ongoing training phase, yeah. So this too is for me is a precious training opportunity. So thank you. Um, did I answer your question? <laughs> Sorry. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what inspired me to come back? Um, well, the, initially I went to Canada at age sixteen. It was just an exchange program. But if you know, the, I don't know how many of you are educators or you work for school, you work at school. Oh, right, of course, many of you are. Um, we have a certain school educational system, uh, language education, which has its basis um, built like right after World War II and hasn't changed much. So by the time I reached grade 10, I intuitively knew that I could get 100 scores, test after test, but still would not be able to have a command of this language. And that was a very obvious fact, but nobody really questioned this. You can do everything perfectly as instructed, but you don't get to be where you want to be. So I asked, I think I talked to the school principal and all English teachers, and none of them really gave me an answer to my question. And somebody from outside of the school encouraged me just to step out and see the world out there. So that was my initial motive. And I think this similar motives are still in me in the context of Zen practice. Mm. That's what I call my broad nature. How so? Um, questioning, sorry, let me rephrase it. It's my questioning constant. 
Thank you. My name is Rachel. I have a question, if sure. it's possible to ask. I'm thinking about the intention setting and the mindfulness that you cultivate with the chance. And I'm wondering, as I aspire to keep myself loose and soft with the practice, how to balance intention setting with being and doing and living and how to, how to know how to know where to be putting the energy at which moment. Mm. Does that make sense as a question? I can try and answer your question. Let me know if I'm not really responding uh, accurately, but um, I was just sharing yesterday uh, that I understand my understanding of Dharma and Dharma in an original sense, goes back to multiple sources, but it's a law of the universe, causality. And then for Buddhists, it's the way out to the enlightenment. So there's a, definitely the intentional quality in this latter half. The first half, it comes, uh, it is understanding the way a life works, the world presents itself. And, but yet, that encompasses our way of life. And so there's definitely the intention. And then as the Zen practice teaches us, there's a part that is non-intentional, non-thinking, non-artifice. Uh, I always think these two qualities mutually support. And one goes because we can't disregard our intention as something outside of the causality. If you are completely um, standing upon this intentional elements and sort of disregard this causality and you sort of lose sight of the Dharma. So there's a sort of fine line between these two. And to your question, I think this out of this sort of tuning, did I say tuning? Tuning, yes, uh, comes uh, very subtle, sometimes a very subtle way comes the answer, the kind of you're looking for, kind of answer you're looking for. And I think that's why we sit, right, Koshin san? <laughs> I, yes. I'm looking at two pages. Anyone else have a question? Hello. Hi. Hi. So good to be here with everyone. Um, I'm curious about your non-denominational uh, community. Um, my mind fills with all sorts of filling, trying to fill the gaps of what that is or what it's centered around. And um, I guess that's my question. Thank you, Joanne. Right. Thank you. Yes, that's exactly my question. I think it still is in my mind. What the heck does it mean to be non-denominational? <laughs> it's not so much of an answer. That's my, well, there's no conclusion to that. That's endeavor. That's the approach, the path. Non-denominational Buddhism is the path. It's not a conclusion. <laughs> if you know the history of Buddhism, it appears in so many different forms. 
Well, just as a historical fact, there was a movement in Japan in the 50s where Western Buddhism, sort of philosophers and researchers, digged out this old text of Buddhism. It's been ongoing today still. And there was a sort of movement to re-evaluate all the traditional Buddhist schools, Kyolan Buddhism, Soto Zen schools, uh, Shingon school, and see how accurate they are. I sometimes think it's kind of like a Bible movement that you want to double, sort of double check if it's accurate, comparing it to Hebrew beyond the Sanskrit. So there was sort of that kind of movement. And I was around my grandfather's age days Reverend Osara, who built this church, comes from right around this generation. So they, I think he, especially with that influence, that context back then, and then the fact that all the community members came from different denominations, they decided to just keep it non-denominational. Now, when I came to this church six years ago, uh, it's still today the same too. I mean, there has been a segment of people who have been very, um, how would I say, S uh, not stubborn, <laughs> fixed. They were very fixed about the idea of staying non-denominational. Now, when your desire to stay non-denominational becomes strongly strong, just like that question from Rachel, your intention becomes strong. And they suddenly say, oh, no, no, no Soto Zen practice. No, no, no Shingo practice. No Amitabha Buddha, no Myoho Renge Kyo. We just want the pure Buddhism. <laughs> and that frustrated me tremendously. And that was a really good practice for me because I came out as a Soto Zen missionary and saying, uh, right, the Zen is the path. But they would not accept that at all. No. Zen is now, Zen is something else. So the attempt that we've been making together with the new generations and still including the original members is yes, non-denominationalism is open. We can't not let this turn into another denominationalism. It's just a matter from attachment. Um, and I, I realize how easy it can happen. So those are missionaries who are sort of proposed to this community three of them got kicked out or then two others who are, are going to come for an interview weren't accepted in the first place. When I came here in 2012, uh, we had a conversation for 12 minutes, 12 minutes. <laughs> uh, I was initially supposed to go to San Francisco, but then they wanted somebody else. So I was in Canada back then and at the time, this is just my personal lifestyle, but I lost a place to go to. And I, my son was born with Down syndrome, with a couple of heart conditions. So I said, okay, well, I guess it's time for me to just put aside my priest life and become ESL teachers. I was desperately looking for a position or get a work permit back then. That was when Long Beach Buddhist Church got interested in me and I came here. And after 12 minutes of casual conversation, they said, oh, you're in. And there were, <laughs> the other couple of hours were just, I remember we're just talking about local food and restaurants. <laughs> so I guess this, their spirits. And then what I was bringing was an intention 
get somehow matched. We didn't even talk. They didn't even ask me my credentials, how qualified I was. They just sort of thought, you're in. It's probably like how Koshin San invited me here, right? <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't check my background or anything. <laughs> so that's how I started serving. And then I, it's the absence of conclusiveness, absence of definition, what is right and what is wrong. And this has been working great for my students too, because they want to come and they want to sit down and do zazen practice. That's it. They don't want to see people go into casino tour and spend a whole day in a smoky room playing casino and come back. And they don't want to see a greasy chicken, you know, grinning in a barbecue bar. They say, well, that's totally not what you're expecting, but this is what we do. So you come here and be a part of the Sangha and community. And they still do the practice of Zazen. It just kind of opens up their mind. And it has been that way to me too. Non-denominationalism, sorry, the bottom line be the lack of conclusion, absence of definition and conclusion. It's the question again, it's been so resonating with us. Time for one more. Can I, um, thank you so much for that talk. And I love seeing that picture of your son too. That was heartwarming. Thank you. Um, I love the greasy chicken and the casino tour too. So I'm curious about the multiple communities you have, how well they all get together. We are exploring that in our sangha. What does it mean to be a welcoming community and really how welcoming are we and to whom? Um, so I'd like to know more about how that works. Or does it? <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Right, I guess this is something all sanghas are exploring, right? I attended the South Southern Buddhist North America uh, conference, um, and there was a course of discussions. It was very interesting to me, like on unpacking whiteness, how do you see the BIPOC people, people are indigenous people, colored people, mm. people of color. Um, yeah, I kind of reminded me how in today's society is something to think about. Japanese American community did the same, or I shouldn't say the same. No, what happened was because Japanese American community suffered from the discrimination during and after World War II for an obvious reason, uh, some separated from our community to assimilate to Christian world. So that's why our church looks like a Christian church. It doesn't at all look like a Buddhist temple, right? So we, we saw people spitting on the gate, you know, throwing in a feces into the property uh, intentionally sometimes, um, kind of ridiculing the Japanese food. Can you imagine? <laughs> it's hard to imagine now, back then. So they were very protective while they had a strong tie in the community. And I pointed out after coming here that there is some exclusiveness. You're not welcoming us. You're not welcoming people. Um, my son's wife, uh, she came here. Unfortunately, we got divorced. And we're, we're doing well. <laughs> we're just talking to her uh, for the, to celebrate Canadian Thanksgiving. So I think his mom and I were both 
you know, working for my son. He obviously needs both of us uh, for his parents. So, but when she came here and after staying, staying here for a few years, she said, I feel completely segregated, completely pushed outside. Partially, it's a cultural difference. Like we're not as affectionate. We're not as expressively affectionate. We don't talk to the same to the people in the same way. So I think that's something to consider. There's a cultural gap, but deep inside in the subconscious subconsciousness, there was sort of a aversion. They don't want people who don't look like them. And I realize this is really true in California. I'm still, I've been here for only six years, but I was in Toronto for a couple of years before. So here I don't talk to Russian, I don't talk to the First Nations, I don't talk to Chinese, I don't talk to Cambodian the same way I always did in Toronto. Because you can hang out with the like-minded people of your same color, same culture, same language, and you can make your life work that way. Um, this is kind of a bubble of culture. So for me to break that boundary and reach out, I met a lot of uh, resistance. Uh, resistance, yes. So um, this was something I learned actually in the politics <laughs> when I was working for a small community in a very conservative village. Uh, when you want diversity, you have to maybe at the same level, or maybe more, value their core roots. They can, we can never let the core members feel like their source, they're what their parents and grandparents honored and neglected. So I made sure that their legacy, their names, their traditions get revived just as much, if not more, than bringing the new air, new energy, new members. It had to happen simultaneously. I'm not sure if I'm in position, I should say this. When I was in Canada, I loved the European culture, you know, English culture, uh, East European cultures, the West European cultures. So, you know, to me, it sounded a little strange to sort of overemphasize that these cultures are not as important. Sometimes it sounds like that kind of pushing aside the core value. There, I talked about friends from, uh, what was it, Rwanda, uh, in Ethiopia, and their cultures just, um, there's just, it was, the experience was the same and in terms of this sort of cultural experience. Um, and I can't really tell why that was possible and why I'm sort of struggling here. Right now I have a Monday evening class where I have Cambodian, Japanese, um, somebody from England. And I kind of want to embody that Canadian value that I learned. That, and then there are a couple of the LGBTQ people and a person who was in prison twice. <laughs> twice yeah. Um, just creating a space that they are fully accepted for being who they are uh, is I mean, definitely that's the key. That's been our experience, and it happens collectively. So 
I, I don't think I can give you an easy answer to that, but there's this sort of a resilient effort to continue on opening up our own mind and encourage others to open their mind with the acknowledgement that we don't know enough about their culture and us, us, our culture as well either. So that sort of openness, <laughs> humbleness. I'm not sure I'm being humble, but reminding ourselves to be humble. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Gyoke-san. And I was wondering if you could, and thank you so much for being here, if you could close the group for in the way that feels right for you. Okay, thank you. Your expression. ねがくはこの黒くを持って天ねく一切に及ぼし我らと主情と皆共に仏道上善こと May this merit extend universally to all so that we may together with all beings realize the Buddha way. Buddha Bodhisattvas, Mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaprajna Paramita. I'm a kid. I'm a kid. Oh. I'm a kid. Hi. Thank you.